I think everyone at some point, for some reason or another, in their life has taken up running. Now, I know often in our lives we like to walk, unless there are the exceptions to that. Perhaps if we're being chased by a dog or we are trying to get away from someone, we might take up running. If you've ever tried to run on a regular basis, you will know that running is not fun because running is often painful. Uh, Oftentimes in running, whether you're going on a, a jog for a few miles or if you're running a marathon, running causes pain. So if you've served perhaps in the military where you had to run regularly, you know that in those early days of running, uh, it was excruciatingly painful, but over time that pain seemed to subside. Because of the pain that is often associated with running, runners face uh, a particular temptation, and that is called disassociation. You'll find often in popular running and in athletics or with uh, amateur athletics, you'll find people running with headphones on, listening to music, perhaps even having a conversation with a friend. And, And those things are not wrong in and of themselves if you perhaps have taken up running as a hobby. But disassociation in running is when you don't think about the act of running where you sort of let your mind go away into the things around you, the beautiful scenery or the great music, rather than focusing on running itself. Because of the pain, runners are tempted to disassociate. Uh, One expert writes this, you'll run better if you associate. She writes, a sports uh, psychology consultant writes this, she says, when you're associating in running, you're focusing on tasks relevant. When you're tuned in with your body, if you will, you tend to run with better form, have better arm string, maintain paced things in a proper way, and allow your run to be stronger. Now, we've all seen people who've run in a way that's kind of funny. Uh, if you've ever seen someone who doesn't have good arm swing when they run or, or maybe good right transit, you're like, wow, they don't know how to run well. But when you watch a professional athlete, uh, perhaps a long distance runner or a sprinter run, and you see their form, you see their bodies, uh, they are in control of everything. Uh, every joint in their body is under control through training. You see, running is just as much of an art form as it is a discipline. And in the Bible, the Bible often uses this idea of running. Have you ever considered in the Bible how often the Christian life is described in terms of traveling, running a race, going on a journey, walking with the Lord, and on? If the Christian life is truly a race, that we are running, if it's, if it's a, a race for which we are having to do something, then how are we tempted, perhaps, to disassociate, to focus on wrong things rather than focusing on running? Efficiency is essential to running a long-distance marathon. 
uh, is essential. You don't go out of the gate if you're going to run a marathon sprinting. If you do, you will not make it to the end. That's your tip for the week. If you want to take up the task of running a marathon, you don't sprint, right? Long-distance runners learn how to be efficient. So how are we tempted to be distracted? And how are we tempted to run too quickly so that we tire out and don't finish the race? Friends, that is how Peter finishes this letter. He ends this letter by casting our thoughts into a race. Peter concludes by by thinking about faith that finishes. Faith that finishes. We've spent the last uh, really three months uh, looking at this letter. And I want to just sort of summarize it for you in one word, certainty. The word certainty or certain is really the theme of this whole letter. He writes that they may be certain of a few things. That they may be certain of their faith. He begins the letter with that. If you look in your Bibles to chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We began by considering this certain faith that they had. And and that certainty is really taken up with the whole of chapter 1. The whole of chapter 1 is this certain faith that they have. You'll see it highlighted in verse 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So through living godly lives, we confirm the certain faith that we have. We see also in this letter a certainty of the scriptures. A certainty of divine revelation through the prophets and apostles the church could be certain of the truth that they had received. They could depend upon it, that it was the truth and not a lie. And as we've considered in chapter 3 over the last few weeks, a certain judgment. Chapters 2 and 3 are taken up with the, the idea and the theme of judgment. The false teachers denied a future judgment. They were like the Pope who denied in a literal hell and they denied in an eternal judgment that God would one day bring. But here Peter writes and says, no, you may be certain of this. Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And so with that, we come to chapter Two or three, excuse me, in verse 17 and 18. And you're looking at your ESV Bible, you'll notice that 17 and 18 is kind of washed in with that final paragraph. But I hope to show you that this is really a second uh, summary statement, uh, a sort of final summary of the whole letter is captured in these words. And you'll notice here that throughout this section, he's repeated the word beloved. Beloved, therefore, beloved, since you're waiting in verse 14 and then in verse 17, you, therefore, beloved. So Paul or Peter is rounding this up, summarizing together for us in verses 17 and 18. Let's read this here, God's word. 
You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter summarizes here in this way. Only faith, only faith that is guarded against error and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior endures to the end. Only faith, the only kind of faith that endures to the end, that finishes the race, that runs the race well and actually gets to the end, Peter says... The only kind of faith that does that is faith that is guarded against error and growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so, if you are a Christian today and you are in the race, you're running the race, and you want to know, how do I get to the end? How is it that I endure to the end? Well, brothers and sisters, it is only faith that perseveres to the end that will truly save. The Bible is clear there's only one type of saving faith, and that is persevering faith. Faith that endures to the end. And so Peter offers us two aspects of faith that finishes. The only kind of faith that finishes is this. Faith that is guarded and faith that is growing. Guarded faith and growing faith is the only kind of faith, two parts, two pieces of faith that endures. So we're going to consider these, verse 17, guarded faith, and verse 18, growing faith. And let's look first at verse 17, guarded faith. Peter offers here a final reminder, a final conclusion, a final crescendo before the end comes. He says, listen, I've said all of this so that you would be guarded. I've said all this so that you would be prepared. Look at what he writes here. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. Knowing what? Knowing what? Knowing that false teachers are coming. Knowing that false teachers are coming. Peter uses this word knowing, which has the idea of foreknowledge. It means that you've been warned. You have the knowledge. You've been warned. You have been instructed. Since you know this in advance, you need to take action. In other words, act on what you've been told. We've been told over and over again in this letter that false teaching is coming or has already arrived. And we see the context here of what they're doing. He says, take care, knowing this. And this this could refer to the immediate context, which is in verse 16. See it there. Look at verse 16. Um, Paul does in all his letters when he writes in them, about these matters, matters of the end times, matters of the second coming of Christ, matters of judgment. Uh, Think 2 Thessalonians 5, if you will, as an example. There are some things in them, that is the letters of Paul, that are hard to understand, that the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. 
And so, so Peter, Peter has in mind this, knowing this beforehand, knowing that there are coming people who are going to take the Bible, take God's Word, the revelation of Scripture, God's Word, and twist them. You've all been there when your words have been twisted, when the, they've been taken out of context, when they've been distorted for some perverse end. Friends, God's Word is done like that every day. You hear it. I hear it on the radio. I, I hear it in the news. God's people are, are tempted to be, to be drawn away by false teaching. In the Christian Standard Bible here in verse 17, it, they add this word, since. Uh, since you know this beforehand. In, the, in a sense there, there, there's a connection of acting upon what you know. And we'll see the importance of that in number two, growing in knowledge. You see, if we're not growing in knowledge, then we're not prepared for what comes. So being on our guard comes from revelation of Scripture. It doesn't come through a good book. It doesn't even come through a good sermon. It comes through you knowing God's Word. And you knowing what is coming. God prepares His people by telling them in advance what is coming. This is why we can read a word about people wanting to hear preachers that tickle their ears. That was written to a pastor in the first century 2,000 years ago and it rings all the more true today. Because the enemy doesn't have like a bunch of tricks. He's got a couple, I mean, that work well, and that's about all he's got. And Satan has these tricks, and God has prepared his people through the revelation of both the Old Testament prophets as well as Jesus' own instructions about false teaching. And this is why in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, Watch out, be aware. There are coming people who are going to take my word and they are going to change it and distort it. And so we must be prepared. That's just what Peter has written throughout this letter. Prepare yourself for this. And you see the main exhortation comes in verse 17. Take care that you are not carried away by the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. The main command Peter has in this is take care or be on your guard against. The Christian Standard Bible really captures that. Be on your guard. Be ready. Peter wanted them to be certain about these things. And certain that false teachers were coming. They were not to be surprised by it. Nor were they to be passive nor complacent. Rather, they were to be alert. And this is much of what the Christian life is. A life of alertness. A life of activity of mind. Not passivity in thinking. So often I find among ourselves where we just are passive in our thinking. We just let things just sort of wash over us without thinking intentionally about what is being communicated to us. Whether it be through the media or through our own words. We need to think. We need to prepare now. If false teaching hasn't come into our lives, then today is the day of preparation. We prepare for the false teachers to come. 
We see here that it is those who do not know God's word who are easily swayed by false teachers. Easily swayed by false teaching when you do not know God's word. This is why we should regularly study God's word so that we'll know it. Friends, you don't need any extra book. You don't need a commentary. You don't need anything to know God. He has written His Word in such simple words and in such a simple fashion that any man of any education, whether you don't have a a high school diploma or if you have a PhD, you can read the Bible. God has communicated His Word clearly so that any man or any woman can know Him. And so we're to study God's Word. We're to to know Him. We're also to study God's Word in community with other believers so that we can encourage one another and hear from one another. Open the Bible and, and read together. We do this by meeting regularly every Lord's Day to hear from God and His Word. Not to hear what, you know, some man concocted this week in his office. Not to hear what cool, hip, topical sermon I, uh, or sermon series that I can come up with. But to just come and regularly and almost just in methodical way hear from God yet again and again and again and again. Not to bore ourselves to death, but to remind ourselves that we come to hear from God and not from men. We study also by reading good Christian books. I don't want to just sort of throw Christian books out and say, oh, they're bad, we shouldn't read them, it's just Bible only. No, no, there are good resources out there that we can give ourselves to read together, to understand the Scriptures, to grow in our understandings of God's Word. Studying God's Word is like putting new tires on your car. See, if you have like old tires uh, that, that, that don't have a lot of traction, don't have a lot of tread on them, well, you know what happens. You, you can easily lose control. You can't stop on time. You, you can't uh, have control of the vehicle in an emergency. But new tires give you control and they give you protection. You're able not only to have traction, you can move, you can actually go somewhere, but you can also have control so that you don't drift away into the ditch of theological error. By studying God's word, you're putting those fresh tires on. You have traction and control. Paul reminds young Timothy of this same truth of being guarded. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Or Jesus' warning to his disciples in Luke 12. And he said to them, take Care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in abundance of his possessions. Or in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, Be on your guard, for I've told you all this beforehand. We take care so that we do not drift away. And, and Peter here offers us in verse 17 really two reasons why we should be on our guard. He motivates us with these two reasons. First, so that you aren't swept away by lawless people. And secondly, so that your faith doesn't become unstable. So you don't lose your own stability and fall away from the faith. We see here in verse 17, he writes, So that 
You are not carried away with the air of lawless people. This word carried away means to cause someone in conjunction with others to go astray in belief. The idea is you're going astray in what you believe. You are being led away or led astray. And Peter outlines the results of those who do not heed this warning to take care or be on your guard. And you might think, you know, I got it. I'm good. Nothing's going to come on me. I got this. You are a fool, Peter says. If we do not take care, then these will be the results. We will be carried away by air. We will be teaching so much crazy nonsense that we don't even know what's right or what's wrong. And notice here the nature of these false teachers or the air. Notice it is the air of lawless people. You see, these false teachers had a preoccupation with distorting Paul's words about grace. You see, if we're saved by grace and not by works, then one could conclude, well, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do. I mean, God saves me by grace. He sustains me by grace and not by works. And so, you know, if I just keep sinning, isn't that okay because I'm not saved by my work? You see, they distorted Paul's teaching in order to suit their own licentious hearts. This is what Paul wrote to the church in Rome about. In Romans 6, What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul writes. They use grace as a license to sin. And Peter warns us of their deceptive nature. Friend, anyone who will water down God's word and make sin light and the consequences of sin light has another motive in mind. And that is a licentious heart. A heart driven more by their own desire than they are by God. Proverbs 1.10 reminds us of this truth. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Or in chapter 4, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. This is what we read together about in Psalm chapter 1. That we are to go the way of righteousness and not the way of the wicked. We are to consider that those who live wicked lives end in destruction, but those who pursue godliness end in Christ-likeness and in righteousness. Or as... Paul reminds us in Ephesians, excuse me, chapter 4 and verse 14. And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You see, God gave the church gifts in order to help guard against error. He told the elders of the church, the pastors of the church, that you have a responsibility to guard God's people from lawless error 
And you ever consider that gift that God has given to our own congregation? To raise up men who will teach God's word and not lead us astray. This is what we pray to. Pray for this. Pray for me that I would not be led astray. That I would not be drifting away into error. Pray regularly for the preaching of God's word. That it would be faithful to scripture and calling sinners to repentance in faith. We see the second reason here in verse 17 of why we must be on our guard. Why we must have guarded faith so that you don't lose your own stability. So that you don't lose your own stability. The word here that Peter uses is the word to fall, to falter, to fall away. He has apostasy in mind. Shaky faith. Faith that doesn't finish. Peter warns us here of the deadly consequences of those who flirt with false teaching. The deadly consequences of those who flirt with the prosperity gospel. Name it and claim it. Who flirt with God wants your best life now. Who flirt around with the teachings of this age. To say that sin doesn't matter. You live however you want. You choose your own destiny. Peter writes to remind them that even the greatest can fall if they're not on guard. Well, Peter knew that himself, did he not? I will never leave you, Jesus. I'm ready to die with you, Jesus. But only hours later, Peter was more concerned with staying warm by fire than facing the fires of the trials that Jesus would endure. Even Peter himself in Galatians 2, we are told, fell away from the faith because Peter preferred to be liked by people rather than to be liked by God. He was more concerned about his own personal prejudice towards non-Jews than he was about following God and His Word. And Paul confronted him, we were told in Galatians 2. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter so that even Barnabas was led astray, same word, by their hypocrisy. Peter was once swayed more by popularity than by Scripture. But here we find Peter fulfilling what the Lord commissioned him to do. When the Lord restored Peter from his rebellious sinfulness, when Peter was restored, remember what Jesus said? He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded you to to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter here is strengthening strengthening the church of Jesus Christ so that you and I would not fail. Faith that endures to the end is faith that is guarded. 
Faith that takes care, that is alert to the dangers around them. And brothers and sisters, we must guard ourselves from false teaching so that we are not swept away by lawless people and lose our own stability. Well, we see in verse 18 a positive exhortation. If verse 17 is a negative, uh, now we turn to positive. We, we, we turn to the good now that we've considered the bad. The warning to the positive in verse 18. Faith that adores, faith that finishes, is growing faith. Faith that grows. Look at what Peter writes here in verse 18. But grow, but grow. In short, Christians grow. Seems like you don't need a PhD to figure these things out after all. Christians grow. Christians are to continue to become greater, to grow and increase in the knowledge of God and in grace. In other words, the Christian life is one of perpetual growth, continual growth. As we heard earlier, it's not a sprint, but a marathon. It's not something that happens overnight, but something that is slow, something that takes time, something that requires endurance. Christians grow. Christians that do not grow stink up the church as a pool of stagnant water stinks. So a Christian who is not growing Well, he or she stinks too. The word here is used to describe also the way a child grows. You ever considered how often Jesus uses the word grow to describe the kingdom of God, to describe our own Christian faith? And he always uses words that help describe what we experience in everyday life. Growing children. Even if you don't have children, you've seen children, you've been a child yourself, Um, And and so you know that children grow, not overnight, but slowly over time. Over time, a child learns. And so what they learn in kindergarten isn't what they learn in the 10th grade. You know that children learn some faster than others, but they all grow. When we're born, we don't know how to speak, but slowly... Over a number of years, by hanging around people who speak, uh, not because we go to class, we don't go to school, we learn from those around us as they speak, use language, and communicate to us. Friends, this is the fundamental principle of the Christian life, that we are to grow slowly over time, learning more and more. I wonder, are you growing? Have you grown? Will you grow? As Christians, we want to grow incrementally from one degree of glory to the next, Paul writes. And so a Christian who is not growing is at best an immature Christian. He's a child when he should be an adult. And at worse, at worse, not a Christian at all. Christians grow. Paul reminds us of this when he exhorts the church in Corinth, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
or, or as he exhorts the church in, in Colossae. So walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Christians grow, Peter writes. The scripture is filled with Christians who are growing in grace and faith. And so Peter here tells us two ways Christians are to grow. I'm sure there are more that we could consider, but here Peter just thinks about two. First, Christians are to grow in grace from our Lord and Savior. And number two, Christians grow in knowledge. Christians grow in grace and Christians grow in knowledge. Well, as you look here at your Bible, you'll notice what he says. He says, grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, the idea there is grow in the grace from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we grow in grace? We grow in grace by discovering our need for more grace. If you have ever met a, a senior saint, someone who is mature in Christ... Someone who has the wounds and the battle scars of fighting a valiant fight for Christ. I guarantee you if you ask them what's one question about sin, you ask them about their sin. And they will think more about their sin than when they were first saved. Because as we grow closer to the Lord, we have a greater understanding of our own depravity and our own wickedness and therefore our greater need for grace. So how do you grow in grace? Through humility, recognizing that the work in you is the work of God through Jesus Christ and not your own work. See, as we mature in Christ, the temptation becomes, man, I'm good. I got this. I'm okay. I look at me. Look at how my life is turned around. I don't do the things I once did. And we grow proud, big-headed. But what we need more and more of is grace fueled by humility. As we understand our own depravity, our own wickedness, and so much of the Christian life is growing to know your own deceptive heart. In other words, learning to know you don't know yourself as best as you think you know. That God really knows you. And by His grace, He takes His Word and like a spotlight, shines it upon your own depraved heart. And you recognize daily, I need grace. I need to grow in grace. I need more of it. More than that, I think also to grow in grace means that you grow to be more gracious. Those who are ungracious are those who don't think they need grace. Those who think, you know, uh, I don't need grace, they're, they're just kind of the hardest, coldest people. But, but get this, if you understand yourself to be a sinner in deserving grace, then you will see others as deserving grace. That means you won't be quick to judge. You won't be quick to condemn. You will count others more worthy than yourself. That's what you mean. That's what it means to grow in grace. To know, grow in grace from God and to grow in grace in our lives. Grace is the gift God has given every one of us. Every one of us has experienced God's unmerited favor, not only in salvation, but also through our lives together. 
We learn by grace. We have children by grace. We are married by grace. We retire by grace. We receive all things by grace. And so we grow to be more dependent on God and His grace than we are on ourselves. But not only that are we to grow in grace, we see also we're to grow in the knowledge about our Lord and Savior. But grow, Peter writes, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The idea here is the object of our knowledge, not knowledge in and of itself. So Peter is not here exhorting you to be a Bible scholar so that you can win Jeopardy and answer all the Bible questions. My kids, every time I watch that, I mean, you know, I, I, the sweat begins to go down my face when the Bible questions come up. Is this if I'm the Bible answer man? No. I don't know everything about the Bible. But we're to grow in knowledge about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to grow to know Him. And you're not going to know God by going out and looking at the beautiful Shenandoah Valleys. You'll know something about God. But what you will see there will only be a speck of what you can see here. If you want to know God, don't go on a hike. Don't go on a kayak trip. Don't go out in the woods. Go to the Scriptures. As the author of Hebrews tells us, it is through the revelation of His Son that we see God. We see Him clearly through them. Or as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.16, let that light has shined out of darkness and has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so learn through His Word and learn through experience. Learn through your trials in life and through your difficulties to know God, to depend upon Him, to trust Him. Grow in grace and knowledge about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see finally here in verse 18 that Christians grow to glory in Christ. Christians grow to glory in Christ. Peter concludes, to him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now some of your Bibles may not have that amen there. uh, because It probably was added on. um, But nonetheless, we can amen it. But Peter concludes with where he began. If you have your Bibles open, just turn back over to verse 1 again. 2 Peter in chapter 1 and verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And you'll remember there that I argue that what Peter is writing here is he is applying that word, those two words, God and Savior to one person, Jesus Christ. In other words, he is saying that Jesus Christ is God and Jesus Christ is Savior. This is what Peter has begun with. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of of Jesus our 
Lord. Peter began with saying that salvation is wrapped up in the work of Jesus Christ and Him alone. As I said, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. God in His grace and His immense love for us sent His Son Jesus Christ to live a perfect life and to die a perfect death for our sin so that all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ would be saved. And He was raised again after the third day for our vindication, for our faith. That we can trust and know that what Jesus did on the cross was accomplished. That we can know, as Peter writes, that is by the righteousness of Jesus that we are saved, not by our own righteousness. Not by our own obedience. Not by us fulfilling the law. Rather, Jesus fulfilled the law for us, on our behalf, for all those who trust in Him. And Peter concludes here that the Christian life from beginning to end is God's work and God alone through Christ is worthy of glory. Christ alone is worthy. Christ alone is who we gather to sing about and to pray to and in the name of. Our life is summarized in Christ and in Him alone. Brothers and sisters, faith that endures to the end is faith that grows in these ways. We must not remain stagnant, but continue to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. In this way, as we grow, we give glory to God through Christ, both now and for all of eternity. And I wonder this morning, do you have that kind of faith? Do you have the faith that will endure to the end, that will make it? Will you quit? Will you give up? Only faith that is guarded against error and growing is faith that endures. Toward the end of John Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress, as Christian and hopeful approached the celestial city, We are told that they faced difficulty all the way to the end. As they reached the delectable mountains, as they came there to these great and magnificent mountains on the outskirts of the celestial city, they both went and ate in the gardens and the orchards that they discovered there. These on the foothills of the mountain, which belonged to Lord Emmanuel. There they met some very kind shepherds who welcomed them, pastors, who encouraged them. Who encouraged them, but also gave them some warnings. The Lord had given these shepherds a charge to protect the good pilgrims that would pass along the way to the celestial cities. And the shepherds invited them to come and rest from their long journey. The next morning... The shepherds warned Christian and hopeful of the nearby hills called air and caution, which led some of the travelers to disaster. The shepherds allowed Christian and hopeful to look through a telescope that they had there at the celestial city. 
And Christian and Hopeful trembled as they saw that city, though they looked through a glass dimly lit. The shepherds bid them farewell before giving them one final instruction. As they approached, as they left the delectable mountains, they warned them not to fall asleep on the enchanted ground that they were going through. And so Christian and Hopeful went on in their journey. And as they made their way through the enchanted ground, they began to talk with one another. In part, their discussion helped them to warn off, ward off the sleepiness that comes from crossing the enchanted land. They, they asked whether any person is free from sin and agreed that only Christ has been sinless. And Christian had asked Hopeful along the way how he came to realize that he was a sinner. And Hopeful told about how God had saved him from his sin. It was in this that Christian was reminded of Mr. Wise, wise Man's words, two are better than one. And as they traveled through there uh, in the enchanted grounds, as they approached the celestial city, there was yet one thing they had to cross, the River Great. The River Great was a symbol of death. They didn't reach the celestial city until they went through death. A few shining men came and helped them along their way. Angels encouraged them. And as Christian went out into the water, as he went out into death, he began to cry out, Lord, save me. I can't feel the bottom. As Hopeful made his way through, he cried out to Christian, I can feel the bottom. It'll be okay. It's all right. We'll get through. It is hopeful, encouraged Christian along his way. And they both made it to the other side and went to the gates of that celestial city. Bunyan, as he writes this, is being very pastoral. Consider for a moment that as they went through the enchanted ground, Bunyan reminds his congregation that, listen, it's not going to be easy in the end. That true Christians suffer and face trial all the way to the river great. But it's only those who endure to the end that are saved. And consider for a moment that Christian, the the main character of Bunyan's story was the one who was wrestling through death. The one who was afraid of death. The one thought that he was going to drown. It was hopeful that, that had his feet firmly on the ground and, and was encouraging Christian, don't lose faith, don't give up. As Bunyan pastorally reminds his congregation that everyone experiences death differently but it's only those who endure to the end that are saved well, may the Lord have faith may the Lord give us faith that finishes to the end now to him be glory both now and to the day of eternity amen let's pray
Gracious Father in heaven, we give glory and praise to you. We trust today that though we may gather here with weak faith or with really strong faith, that faith and faith alone saves. That trusting in the finished work of Christ alone is the only way we will endure to the end. We trust that you are the one who ultimately secures us. That though our faith might be shaky, that though our faith might be weak, we trust that Christ will hold us fast. We trust that we are eternally secure in the hands of Christ our Lord. It is to him we give glory. It's to him we pray. In his name, amen.